It is with much regret that I must announce to you, our listeners, that the Temp Fans podcast is not exclusively about the fall. I did my best, but after six episodes we've run out of records. What about the Peel Sessions box set, I pleaded to Ewan, the countless EPs over which we ran roughshod, all those bootleg live recordings? The answer was a firm no. We are temporary fandoms, and the time must come when we move on to other artists. And that's what we're doing today. But we do have a special treat lined up for all those full fans who've stuck around. So as you know, we listen to complete discographies in chronological order. And then we talk about the experience. If you follow the links in our show notes, you can find a version on Spotify that comes with sample tunes from each album under discussion. We can be found on the Beat Rehab website and at tempfans.com, as well as all the other places where podcast landfill accumulates but you already knew that. Let's meet the guests and get on with today's episode on Arthur Lee's psychedelic rock legends, Love. Hello there, welcome to episode 21, Nailed It, of Temporary Fandoms. Uh, I'm Ewan. And I'm Nick. And... Well, we're back, um, and we are no longer doing the fall. Um, I feel that my music collection has totally changed after the five weeks I spent listening to the entire discography for the first time. Um, as we record this, we are currently number six in the slightly niche Apple Podcast GB Music slash Music History. Take that, Bob Dylan. We just pipped you. Um, if you want us to stay there, please, I know, review us. I mean, there's lots of you who listen and not a lot of you who review. If you could spend five seconds of your time just wherever you find this, just clicking the five stars, the five stars, that would be amazing. If you want to type something about how amazing Nick is, brilliant. Also, um, there is the Spotify playlist as well. We are aware it's not as easy to find if you just search for us on Spotify. So either go to tempfans.com, click the little link uh, button in the episode, uh, Beat Rehab, or the Instagram page that we have. All of those things have links to the playlist. If not, carry on listening in your normal way and feel free to stop the pod and go off and listen to albums uh, in their entirety and be, as we want you to be, a, a, at least a temporary fan um, and have that temporary fandom that we do when we go through all the albums. Um, before I get to today's guests, I'm going to read a long list of names who are the people who have come on the pod and have massively helped us over this first year. That's Zoe Von Hess, John Tanzi, Aaron Troy White, Brendan Quigley, Chris Whitby, Emma McDermott, Marianne Powell, Cy Sharp, Ben Zimmer, uh, Lyle Wagonak, Stephen Miller, Jonathan Fisher, Jesse Darnow, Jeffrey Lewis, William Shun, Scott Donald, John Henderson, Fliss Kitson, Joe Mitchell, James Kennedy, Mike Plowman, Sheree Amore, Tansy McNally and featuring uh, Emily Baldoni, who is coming on again for the fourth time. Emily, how are you? I'm good. And I'm, I'm actually reminded now that you mentioned that this is the fourth time that I've been on it last time. I think you banished me from the podcast. I think you kicked me out, Ewan, because I didn't, I didn't like one of those later Spoon albums. Don't worry about it. There's, there's a lot of stuff I don't like. I mean, Nick, Nick's incredulous looks at me have been keeping me going throughout lockdowns. Um, also joining us, we have half of the Giddy Pop Pod podcast. And um, is that correct, Gavin? The Giddy Carousel of Pop. Yes, sir. Giddy Carousel of Pop. Pop. I, I, my lips are all tongue tied. I've been moving hair <laughs> today. Uh, which is a sort of what Smash Hits pod? Yeah, it's the nation's favorite Smash Hits podcast. How many are there? We may be in a small field of one, but <laughs> we're still the nation's favourites. Fantastic. And and also joining us, um, well, I, I feel Nick is trolling me at this point. We spent a year um, building up to this, oh, fine, we'll get around to doing, the, Nick, we'll do the fall at some point, we'll do the fall at some point. And then we spent six episodes doing the fall. Nick was really happy. Uh, Christmases were all, all, all came in at once. And after that, I thought, Brilliant. We're, we're no longer going to be doing anything about the fall. So, so joining us is is author of Leave the Capital and Have a Bleeding Guest, uh, drummer with uh, the fall, basically. Hello, Paul Hanley. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, good evening. Thank nice you. to see everybody. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, 
I've been talking a lot, so we're going to keep this relatively brief now. Um, we're going to hand you over, as usual, to the curator, um, and it is Emily Baldoni. In the first episode, you're going to hear four albums being discussed. Emily, which are those? So those first four are going to be the self-titled debut um, from 1966, uh, followed by Decapo, Forever Changes, and For Sale, or For Sale, depending on how you decide to pronounce it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So you will be hearing from Emily, well, after this. Hello, Temp fans. In this episode, I'm going to be taking you through the sometimes folky, often psychedelic, and occasionally harpsichord-inflected discography of the band Love. Love has the blessing and the curse of being incredibly well-known for their 1967 album Forever Changes. I say both a blessing and a curse because, over the years, Forever Changes has received critical accolades to the point where you might be tempted to accuse it of being a bit of a sacred cow. In this particular case, I think a lot of the hype is deserved. Forever Changes is a real pinnacle of Baroque psychedelia. But the unfortunate thing about this version of the story is that a lot of the rest of Love's output tends to get overshadowed as a result. You can call me an overzealous fan, but my main point is, Forever Changes is great, but if you only listen to Forever Changes, you're missing out on a lot. So, over the next little while, I hope you'll follow along with me in delving into the fuller story of love. And that story really has to start with Arthur Lee, because Arthur Lee, as the singer and primary songwriter of the band, as well as the only constant member across all eight studio albums, is really the heart and soul of love. Arthur Lee was born in Memphis in 1945, the son of a jazz musician and a school teacher. Following his parents' separation in the early 1950s, Lee and his mother moved to Los Angeles, eventually settling in the West Adams neighborhood. In the early 60s, Lee started performing and recording with bands under several different names in LA. He also wrote and produced a single called My Diary for Rosalie Brooks, which has the distinction of being one of the first recordings to feature a then-unknown Jimi Hendrix on guitar. Lee and Hendrix, by the way, eventually became friends, but the relationship was always a complicated one. For example, Lee would later claim that Hendrix copied elements of his look and dress style. In 1965, Lee and guitarist Johnny Eccles, who was another Memphis to LA transplant and Lee's childhood friend, formed a band called The Grassroots, along with singer and guitarist Brian McLean, who had the added notoriety of having been a roadie for the birds. Brian would later claim, quote, I think Arthur let me join more for who I knew than what I could do. This initial lineup was rounded out by de drummer Dan Conka and bassist Johnny Fleckenstein. But the name was apparently good, too good to last. Another LA band started calling themselves the Grassroots, and in response, Lee changed the name of his own group to Love. The group had become well known in the LA club scene for their definitely loud shows. And the fact that the band was racially diverse was also an unusual quality in the American rock scene at the time. Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles were both black, while Dan Conka and Johnny Fleckenstein were white, as were Alvin Snoopy Fischer, who soon replaced Conka on the drums, and Ken Forsey, who would replace Fleckenstein on the bass. By the time the group started recording their first album in early 1966, the whole band was living together in a dilapidated old Hollywood mansion nicknamed The Castle, which, by the way, is featured in the artwork for the first and second albums and lends its name to a song on Decapo. As a side note, some sources on the ahem internets uh, claim that The Castle was once owned by Bela Lugosi. From what I can tell, that appears to be a bit of an urban legend, but I still kind of like to believe that it's true. Arthur Lee and Brian McLean were both heavily into the birds at the time, and you can definitely hear that influence on the first album, which is very much in that folk rock vein. In many ways, it's more straightforward than their later output, but nonetheless, I think it's still pretty great from start to finish, though I do tend to prefer the tracks where they diverge a little bit from the birdsy folk rock template. My Little Red Book, which opens the album with its nice kind of mean bassline and Lee's ragged vocals, is one of my favorite love tracks. It wasn't actually written by Love, it's actually a cover of a Burt Bacharach tune 
but Love Give the Track a much more garagey vibe than the previous version, which had been recorded in a much more kind of staid style by Manfred Mann. Can't Explain is another favorite. I've always loved Arthur Lee's repeated exclamation on that one. One day you'll wake up in the morning and find your poor self dead. I mean, it's a feeling everyone can empathize with, right? Following the self-titled album, Love next returned to the studio in June 1966 to record Seven and Seven Is, a proto-punk explosion of a track that ended up being the group's highest charting single. It peaked at number 33 on Billboard. Lee wrote it about a high school sweetheart with whom he shared a birthday, March 7. The song features a frantic, unrelenting drum part that made it, apparently, a real challenge to record. It took over 40 takes, with Lee and regular drummer Snoopy trading off the drum part intermittently in an attempt to keep up with the song's breakneck pace. Producer Jack Holtzman later said of the session, I went into the studio and it was mayhem. It was difficult to record, it was difficult to listen to in the studio, and it was blessedly short. When you recover from your amazement at the song's sheer kickassery, I encourage you to lend an ear to the lyrics, which are also, I think, appropriately nuts. For example, take this couplet. If I don't start crying, it's because that I have got no eyes. My father's in the fireplace and my dog lies hypnotized. The rest of what would become De Capo was recorded in September and October of 1966. The lineup began to expand, signaling the advent of a broader soundscape for the band. By this point, TJ Cantrelli had been added on saxophone and flute, and Michael Stewart Ware took over the drums, allowing poor Snoopy to move over to the harpsichord. In contrast to the debut album's relatively straight-ahead folk rock, the first side of DeCapo features complicated and sometimes ornate arrangements that really point the way towards the vein of Baroque psychedelia that the band would continue to mine on Forever Changes. Meanwhile, tensions were growing between Lee and McLean, who wanted more of his songs included. Orange Skies was the only track that was written by McLean that made it onto DeCapo, and similarly, on the debut album, only one McLean track, Softly to Me, had made it on. There was certainly a creative tension between McLean and Lee during this period. While the two were friends, there was also an element of rivalry between them, and when it came right down to it, even at this early stage, it was Arthur Lee's band, and he made the final decisions. Beyond Arthur, it seems that other bandmates, such as at least Johnny Eccles, also questioned whether McLean's softer style really fit in with the band's sound. In spite of those growing tensions underlying the recording, though, I think this is a fantastic album, with one big caveat, which I will say more about in a minute. If you ask me, the first side is nearly perfect. I just love the crazy harpsichord meets garage waltz of Stephanie Knows Who, which was, by the way, apparently written about a woman who was dating Lee when the song was composed, but was with McLean by the time it was recorded. Like I said, there was rivalry along several dimensions between the two of them. The songs on DeCapo have an incredible variety. In addition to the furious, garagey onslaught of Seven and Seven Is, which, as you can probably already tell, I'm a big fan of, other parts of the album involve ornate and delicate arrangements that incorporate elements of jazz rock and baroque pop. Even a song like The Castle, which some might dismiss as a throwaway, has an instrumental section that starts around 110, which, with its intricate interplay of guitar and harpsichord, is really kind of marvelous. But the elephant in the room, and in my opinion, the big reason that people don't talk about DeCapo in the same glowing terms as Forever Changes, is Revelation, which, clocking in at 18 minutes, takes up all of side two. The track apparently came out of Love's live shows, which were known, among other things, for featuring extended improvisations that gave each band member a moment to shine. According to Johnny Eccles, Love played Revelation at pretty much every show, and they were playing pretty regularly at the time. And the song would get standing ovations. But when the band tried to take that live improvisational energy and bring it into the studio, something just didn't translate. Even the band members themselves seemed to acknowledge that the experiment of devoting an entire side to a single track was a failed one. On the album, it comes off as meandering, self-indulgent, and a bit of a throwaway, granted an 18-minute throwaway. It's really a shame, though, because if you remove that track, 
it's really a perfect little psychedelic jewel box of an album. In spite of Love's notoriety in the LA scene and their brush with Top 40 success with 7 and 7 Is, the band failed to garner much traction on a national level, in part because of Arthur Lee's almost pathological resistance to touring outside of the Los Angeles area. He turned down not only the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival, but also, a few years later, a little um, outdoor show at a farm in Woodstock, New York. A lot of narratives about this period of the band's history tend to place a lot of blame for the band's failure to launch on Arthur Lee's personal idiosyncrasies and his general reputation for being quote-unquote difficult. But in the 2006 documentary Love Story, Johnny Eccles suggests another possible factor. Given that Love was a racially mixed rock band at a time when that was very much not the norm, you can understand why Arthur may have had some hesitation about the reception the band would receive on a nationwide tour, particularly in the American South. Meanwhile, the rest of the band was getting further enmeshed in the darker side of 60s drug culture, spending more and more time holed up at the house they shared, strung out on various things, particularly heroin and LSD. Soon, Snoopy and TJ Contrelli left, making the band a quintet once again. Love was scheduled to return to the studio in June 1967, but Lee had complicated arrangements in mind for the new album, and the band just seemed to be too drug-fogged to carry it off. In an attempt to get the band to pull their proverbial shit together, producer Bruce Botnick called in a group of top-notch session musicians to work on recording a couple of tracks. This was apparently exactly the wake-up call that was needed. Botnick later recalled the rest of the band being, quote, so shocked, so put out, so hurt, that it caused them to forget about their problems and become a band again. With this motivation, the band returned to the studio in August through early September and managed to finally finish recording the album. A lot has been written about the complicated arrangements on Forever Changes. At the time, Arthur Lee had this kind of remarkable ability to imagine whole songs in his head fully formed, but he sometimes lacked the technical or formal musical skills to fully realize what he heard in his head without some technical help from others. According to Johnny Eccles, Arthur's skills on the guitar and the piano were somewhat limited at the time, so he would come in with a melody that he would sing or play a few chords, and then rely on back and forth with the rest of the band to fill things out. From the start, Lee also had string and horn parts in mind for Forever Changes, and he ended up spending about three weeks with David Angel, a classically trained composer, to work out and record the orchestral parts, which were recorded by the end of September. In addition to Lee's compositions, two Brian McLean tracks managed to make their way onto the album this time, the flamenco-tinged Alone Again Or and the more contemplative Old Man. In spite of Alone Again being given the honor of opening the album, and to this day it's probably one of Love's best-known songs, Brian McLean was apparently pretty unhappy that in the final mix, Arthur Lee's voice was mixed more prominently than his own, in spite of it being his own song. I think the interplay of their voices actually works really well on the final version of the track, but it does kind of tell you something about the dynamics of the band at the time. Beneath the beauty of the arrangements on this album, and they are beautiful, the lyrical themes are getting darker, and you can hear Lee's growing disillusionment with the flower power movement. The opening words of The Red Telephone sum up the whole kind of light-dark juxtaposition, which to me is the heart and soul of Forever Changes, remarkably succinctly. Lee starts the song by singing, Sitting on the hillside, watching all the people die. I'll feel much better on the other side. There's something about this image of Arthur Lee surrounded by Summer of Love Glory, but preoccupied with thoughts of something much darker. For me, it's a perfect pairing between the lyrics and the uneasy beauty of the music. The slightly spooky section near the end, where you hear Arthur intoning, we're all normal here and we want our freedom, still gives me chills every time that I listen to it. With the reputation that Forever Changes has built up over the intervening decades, it can be easy to forget that the record was a bit of a commercial flop in the U.S. 
peaking at only number 154 on the Billboard charts, worse than either the debut or DeCapo. Although, it did do much better in Great Britain, where it went all the way to number 24 on the UK album charts. But success in the US seemed to be elusive, at least beyond Love's Southern California home turf. In this context, and given the increasingly fraught relationship with Lee, I think you can forgive Brian McLean a little for getting itchy and leaving the band in 1968, and the fact that he had a solo deal with Elektra in the works probably had something to do with it as well. Meanwhile, Lee dismissed the main remaining members of the band, who had been getting more and more dependent on drugs. Eccles and Forsey, in particular, had become pretty heavy heroin users at this point. The original Love lineup was officially no more, leaving Arthur Lee the last man standing. Lee returned to the studio in 1969 with a new Love lineup, featuring Jay Donilon on lead guitar, Frank Fayad on bass, and George Saranovich on drums. The new band turned in a more straightforwardly blues rock direction, leaving much of the Baroque intricacy of Forever Changes behind. Why such an abrupt change of styles? Well, for one thing, Arthur was musically adventurous, and as we've already seen, he kind of liked to try on different styles and different voices. But he may have had practical motivations too. The complicated arrangements and orchestral parts of Forever Changes were going to be really difficult to pull off live, and that was a major concern, particularly since gigs were a big part of how Love made their money. And another factor, certainly, is just the fact that Arthur's new bandmates weren't that into Forever Changes. The heavier blues rock style was more their wheelhouse. But it does seem like it was not just the band, as has sometimes been reported, but also Arthur Lee himself, who was looking for a change. Jay Donilon, who played guitar in the new incarnation of Love, claims that he showed up for his audition with an acoustic guitar, with forever changes and some of the kind of more folk rock that came before it in mind. But Arthur Lee stopped him, saying, No, we're not into that shit anymore before launching into the much heavier August, which would become the lead track on the new album. Needless to say, Donilon went back and got his electric guitar. In spite of the breakup of the original band, Lee, now the sole songwriter, doesn't seem to have been short on inspiration. The new band ended up recording a whole three LPs worth of material. To fulfill the remainder of Lee's contract, Electra was given the first choice of tracks, which were released as For Sale in September 1969. For there is spelled like the number, and Sale is spelled like the ship part. Note the coy double entendre. And the rest of the material would be released by Blue Thumb Records a few months later, as the album out here. But more about that in a minute. Personally, I think that For Sale, or For Sale, depending on how you choose to interpret it, is an underrated album. No, it's not on the same level as Forever Changes, but I think it's still a really consistently enjoyable album, and I think it would have had a much better reputation if it simply didn't have the misfortune to follow immediately after one of the most loved albums of the 1960s. Or maybe if Arthur Lee had chosen to release it under his own name, rather than branding it as a love record, and hence saddling it with a lot of baggage and expectations in that way. Even with the transition to a more blues rock sound, Lee's distinctive songwriting is still on display, particularly on standouts like August, I'm With You, and Nothing. And the album closes with Always See Your Face, which, if you ask me, more than justifies the existence of the album. It's a perfect and kind of poignant little pop snow globe of a song, with those lovely interlocking piano and horn parts. Hello there, welcome back. Um, you have been listening to Emily Baldoni talking well, talking you through the first four albums by Love um, and listening, if you're on Spotify, to a selection of tunes from those. Still with Nick and myself are Emily. Hiya. Hello. Uh, Gavin. Howdy doody. And Paul. I didn't know I had to have a, a quirky hello. Hello. <laughs> it's okay. It's not QI. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and hopefully, I mean, Nick's having some technical issues. If he disappears for a bit, it's not that he doesn't have anything to say. He's got a lot to say, but internet. Um, okay, we're going to get cracking. Um, what, 1966? 
I think, with Love's eponymous debut. Emily, what was how did Love come about? Um, who is Arthur Lee? Tell me things. <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you about Arthur Lee. Um, uh, so he was born in Memphis, um, but he moved at a pretty early age uh, to L.A., and Love came out of actually he and um, Johnny Eccles, who was the guitar player in this kind of initial lineup of Love, um, had gone to high school together. They started playing in bands together um, under a number of different names. They, they tried out, I think the American Four was one name. Uh, the Grassroots were another, but then that turned out to be taken by another band. So they finally settled on Love um, for the name of the band. And they started uh, gigging quite a bit around LA, especially on the Sunset Strip. They were... Um, quite the they were quite the phenomenon at the time um i mean like king of the sunset set strip is is a term that you hear applied to arthur lee a lot at this point so before this album this first one was actually recorded these were all songs that they had been playing very regularly and they were they were really a tight live group at that time it was all like you know none of this was stuff that like came up for the first time in the studio or anything like that so i think that's that is important to consider, especially in relation to some of the the albums that come after this as well. That have sort of a different relationship to live performance. Um, that that seems to be quite a, a, a standard thing with a lot of bands. They their first album is the stuff they've been playing for four or five years, and it seems to just explode out um, when they have to go and re-record other stuff. Seems to become the channel. Um, how old were they when they were uh, on the Sunset Strip? So they're pretty young at this point. I mean, um, I mean, by the time this album is actually released, I think Arthur Lee was 21. But I mean, at the point where they they actually start playing around, they're all um, like they're barely out of high school, basically. Um, they're probably too young to drink at the time, although I don't actually know what the <laughs> liquor laws were in, in L.A. in the mid 60s. Um, but they're yeah, they're super young right now. Okay. Okay, and okay, so well, musically, before we get into sort of any socio-political stuff, um, I mean, well, it opens with what My Little Red Book, mm-hmm. which was Manfred Mann. That's right. Cover. Um, well, it was it'd been performed by Manfred Mann, but I think I think it was written by Burt Bacharach. Oh yeah, Bacharach and David. Yeah. That's it. The yeah. the classic. Um, it's 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 a really birds type album. You can hear those sort of influences coming in. Um, I mean, I. Most of the albums I've written down stuff like folk, garage, psychedelic, question mark. Um, Gavin, um, when we asked you to listen to, you know, obviously everything before coming on the pod, was this one you were aware of uh, beforehand? Yeah. Uh, the f- first four albums I, I knew um, fairly well, uh, particularly Forever Changes. But yeah, this album as well I'd, I'd had for quite a long time. Having said that, it's not one of my favourites. It's not bad. I find it. I don't like the kind of, I like the birds, but I don't like Love's version of the birds. And I find those kind of mid-tempo songs a little bit ploddy and a little bit samey. My favourite tunes on this album are the ones where there's more of a kind of a bit of a garage rock and more of an up-tempo sort of vibe. Like uh, we've already talked about My Little Red Book, which is just a cracking way to start the album. And stuff like My Flash on You as well. And I kind of wish there was more stuff with that kind of energy. I find like the energy dips a bit on some of the slower tunes. On this, and I don't know if the production's a little bit flat. Um, so, yeah, it's like I say, it's not bad, but it's not, it's not a peak one for me for sure. Okay, um, I'm going to go over to I'm going to go over to you, Paul. Um, you wrote a book about what was it? Leave the capital about music in Manchester, and and you touch upon things like Hermits, Hermits, and and sixties music and how that influenced sort of modern music. Um, do you see any parallels? between what was going on, say, the West Coast of America in the 60s and, say, the UK sound? Or do you think they were totally disparate things? Well, I mean, once you, you've got to factor in that everybody was ripping off the Beatles, I suppose. So um, you can't really get away from that, can you? It's, um, I, don't, I think it's very difficult to... They're like this kind of the elephant in the room, aren't they, the Beatles? I mean, even the birds are like the American Beatles in a lot of ways. Although the Beatles ripped off... The birds a little bit with the twelve string guitars, but the, um, I I don't know really. I think that it's kind of different, isn't it? I think the the big difference I find with American sixties music was fame with everything. They had more money, didn't they? I think I don't think there was. There's no such not, people in bands in America are never working class, as far as I can see. They're all fairly well off. I mean, even Arthur Lee. I mean, you know, there's something cozy about them. I think 
which is probably unfair. Didn't Arthur? I mean, I, I may have totally just mixed up various musical histories, but Arthur Lee parents split up. His mum was a teacher. They moved over to the West Coast. Emily, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. His his mom was a school teacher, and his um his biological dad was a, a jazz musician. They split up when he was quite young, and then his his mother remarried. But um, I mean, I would I, w- I would describe probably his his economic conditions growing up as as, as pretty modest overall. Well, I knew someone. As soon as I said that, I thought someone's got to pull me up here because it's not going to be true. <laughs> yeah, that's but my I, job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I, when I'm, please don't interrupt me when I'm making sweeping assumptions about things that aren't true. You know, but um, no, anyway, I, I, I've never really been into that kind of West West Coast American '60s as much. I mean, I quite like the birds, but this was quite a revelation to me because I've never really listened to Love at all until this I was, I was given this for homework so it's been quite an interesting process i, I mean and, and i mean i'm gonna ask both of you paul and nick i mean there are many covers of of hey joe out there um this has this is a great cover version of hey joe right no. it predates the hendrix one doesn't it does it, it? does yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's still, still not theirs. No, no, they did. They still they didn't write it, but it is. Yeah, that's right. It is before the the Hendrix version, and it's it's. I think it's pretty interesting for how. I mean, it's 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 much more fast paced. It's. I agree with what Gavin said before, but I actually I like this album a lot. But I, uh, to me, the best tracks are the ones that are a little more frenetic, a little bit more driving, and that's that's a great example of of one of those. Um, Nick, um, I mean, wh- wh- where does this sit for you? As sort of debuts i mean most people know love for a, an album we'll get to later on um when we did this on the facebook group i didn't know this album existed i was expecting to go straight into forever changes and that took like three days <laughs> well, honestly, <laughs> the first time I, I listened through to the love discography i'll be honest i didn't even really know forever changes that well um and so it was all kind of new to me but obviously i was aware of it by reputation um and I was totally blown away when I put on the first album and it's, it sort of like crashes out with this, this garage number, uh, my little red book totally wasn't what I expected at all. Didn't see it coming. So I love it. But that said, uh, it does peak on the, on the first track. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's the best of it. It's as good as it gets. And I did go on, uh, I did go and listen to the Manfred Mann version afterwards, which is probably a little unfair because it's awful. It's so weird. It's so weird too. Like, cause it's, they, they've changed the chords a little bit too on the, uh, on the love version. And so once like, that's the version that's in my head, you know? Yeah. Well, that insistent pounding throughout it, which is, you know, that was all, that's what love brought to it. And it's right, just right. amazing. Um, right. But yeah, that's, that's the best thing on the album. But I, I still enjoy it as a whole, you know, just because I wasn't really expecting them to sound like this. I kind of had them down as, yeah, psychedelic hippie stuff. I mean, let's be honest. They still are. They still are psychedelic hippie stuff. It's just they are, but they're definitely on the interesting side of that for the most so. part. Yeah, I mean, I think that's for me because I, I, I don't normally like. I agree that they are, they are psychedelic hippie stuff, and that's not usually like my what I would describe as my favorite sort of like aesthetic mode <laughs> necessarily. But there's enough, um, like, kind of. Uh, curveballs in the way that they do it that it makes it interesting for me and, and I, I i'm kind of naturally inclined to that more primitive sound you know as they mm-hmm. go on they start getting arrangements and they get intricate and uh-huh. they get lovely uh-huh. uh, but you know i can I, I that's my comfort zone them doing this kind of primitive stuff and the mm-hmm. other thing i really liked about this album is it's like it's 40 minutes long and there's 16 tracks <laughs> it's just amazing other bands that- take note well when we did the spoon podcast i did i think I, every single album introduction i was like here we go 38 minutes and x amount of tracks nothing was more than like two minutes 46 and it has been pointed out on this part that i prefer the shorter songs rather than the long ones so yeah no, you're gonna mention is- can again here Who? <laughs> <laughs> or you're saving that for when we get onto the b-side of the capo <sighs> sorry getting ahead there <laughs> the best version of hey joe is by the safaris and the other thing, my bit of trivia for you, the, the Hey Joe is the first thing my brother Steve ever learned to play on the bass uh-huh. guitar. So. Well, now. Um, Nick is sort of super dancing inside that. He's just been, <laughs> he's just been told that by, by a member of his favourite band. I mean, he's, he's trying to hold it together, but I, I, can, I can see this. <laughs> and it's my job to embarrass him. Anyway, um, okay, so let's, let's continue a little bit. Um, 
obviously there are socio-political things that need to well, at least be addressed. Um, it's the sixties. It's America. Um, he's a. I mean, he describes himself maybe later on as the first black hippie, self-proclaimed first black hippie. Or like he um, also described himself as like a. He's like the first psychedelic black man, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, did he do that so that people so that he go, hey, I'm I'm more important than than Jimi Hendrix, or that might be. I mean, the relationship with Jimi Hendrix is 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 kind of complicated because I mean I, they were they were kind of friends, but there's clearly like an element of of Arthur being jealous of of the success, especially a bit later on that that Jimi Hendrix had. Um, like he both sort of he clearly like very much looks up to him, and he also is like a little bit jealous. So like he accused Hendrix of like ripping off his dressing style and um, things like that. There's some complicated psychological dynamics there, I think. Okay. Well, um, we, we've looked at in the past about how well, we've mentioned in the previous pods about, you know, uh, it seemed, seemed that back in days of say the Beatles, you'd have an album every month. Um, and even when we, we did the, the, the vault podcast, we commented about an album every year was quite, is quite rare. Now Radiohead will turn up with one every 10 years and everybody will be like, Oh my God, I've been waiting for so long. Um, 66 was the eponymous. And then 66 was also the capo. That's right. Uh, second album. Yeah. Um, sound changed for me, it went a bit poppier. And I started, there's that word, what horrible word, but Baroque pop. That seems to be on all the descriptions from about this album. Um, and they had a, and they had their first top 20 in the UK, I think with seven and seven is, which I think is, is, is on this one. Um, more of the same? Are they going in a nicer direction, Nick? I'm going to go straight to you this time because you mentioned you prefer the garagey stuff of the last. I was wondering album. if, if, if uh, what makes a record baroque is the introduction of a harpsichord. Oh yeah, damn helps. right! Basically, yeah, yeah. my notes <laughs> on this on this record basically just said bigger, glossier harpsichordia. Harpsichordia sounds like a, a fairy. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the um, I mean, the highlight on this record for me is definitely seven and seven is, which is just, mm-hmm. I, I guess. You know, it's it's coming from the same sort of place as my little red book, though, isn't it? It's another big garage mm-hmm. number. Um, but the uh, the story about the, the the drumming on that is great. About when they were recording it in the studio and nobody could keep up, or or they kept having to switch drummers. Um, why 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 did they have to keep switch like switch drummers? Because one was like. I think Worn it was out, a, like a Snoopy, their actual drummer, just wasn't like up Snoopy. to it or something. Yeah, like Snoopy, it was, I mean, it's a very, it's fast, like it's a very driving track. And Snoopy also, like, if you, if you watch like the, that documentary about love, love story, or you read the, the John Ironson book about love, um, Snoopy just gets shit on like <laughs> by everybody. You have to feel bad for him because I think he didn't, he didn't really enjoy his, his time in the, the band all that um, much um and, and listen just going to j- jump in for a second because listeners who who I'll only listen to this part from my tortuous terrible analogies and gags wait a second emily so if did snoopy end up going to woodstock carry on move on move on oh, snoopy do snoopy do oh i could smell that from here um so 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 how, so snoopy was was what i mean there seems to be a thing later on where arthur gets session musicians in to replace the people who are actually in the band. Um, was there sort of, you said he gets shat, get shit on. Was there a sort of mistreatment of him? Was it just? Well, I think he just, he kind of didn't, he didn't fit in. Uh, like the other members of the band were sort of um, more, in a more flashy way, sort of more uh, counter-cultural. And he was perceived as kind of a square at the time. And I think there are I mean, personality things too, like, he got along with Arthur, but he didn't really get along with a lot of the other members of the band. And it, he also might not have actually been that good of a drummer. <laughs> Terrible drummer. Terrible. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, will, I mean, when we've got a drummer on who's, who's talking about drums, I will always, I mean, I have no idea about it. I mean, he's not very well served by the mix. You know that awful when they first bring stereo in and they have like the snare 35 feet over to the left and the hi-hats are sort of in the next neighbourhood. That's kind of, it's that kind of thing. But he's not a good drummer. But he's, I think that he should be, that, that phenomenon is called doing a lol Tolhurst, where they move you from drums to keyboards. That's what happened to him in The Cure as well. It's yeah, kind okay. of a way, It's presumably the keyboards are near the door, so it's a way of getting you out, I think. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened with this album, because they, they eventually, they move him from the drums to to the harpsichord <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hence the baroque um gavin 
Um, yeah. The first album wasn't one of the, the better ones for you. There's a slight there's a slight change of sound. I mean, not massively, but there is a slight change of sound there. Yeah, um, but it's, it's definitely going in the right direction for me. This one, I like the more um, a rock, I'll use that word again, um, sound. It's got a better production and, I don't know, the songs are a bit more kind of, there's that kind of more dreamy sort of um, nature to them. And, you know, we've talked about Seven and Seven Ears, which is obviously kind of quite a stomper, but there's also stuff like Orange Skies, which is amazing, uh, and Stephanie Knows Who, uh, and She Comes in Colours. are all really beautiful songs, and they're kind of pointing the way towards Forever Changes. I guess yeah, we've got a sort of song to nick that. She Comes in Colours. Yeah, possibly, yeah. Yeah, when I saw it on the track list, I was expecting a different song. Uh, well, she's a rainbow, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess it was. I imagine it was at least an influence. Yeah. Um, obviously, we've we've not mentioned the um, the eighteen minute elephant in the room as yet. Um, the revelation, which I mean, to this day, I can barely listen to. I did listen to it through again, like in preparation <laughs> for this podcast. But I mean, that's one that normally, once it gets to the end, if she comes in colours, then either. Put it back to the beginning or put something else on because it's it's almost unbearable that to me. Is it like more unbearable than what we're gonna to come to later with the drum solo? Yeah. I think it's comparable. Well, equally, unbearable. equally unbearable. It's not thirty or oh, twelve minutes of a drum solo, is it? That is that's the yeah. worst twelve minutes of my life. <laughs> the I'm, 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 I'm counting surgery amongst that. <laughs> um, there is a beautiful thing when a band puts the worst like a such a terrible track as like an album closer. Uh, I mentioned my previous part about how the last Spoon album, I listened to it once, realized I hated the last song so much. I never, for me, the album became nine tracks and I really liked that album. And the last one just went and I never listened to it again. I knew I'd never be, be turned around. Um, were they getting any more critical acclaim at this point? Were they still bubbling under? Was there anything going on with Emily? Well, they're, they're definitely still, I mean, like... They were kind of locally famous. I mean, they were they were they were getting very well known, and and they're very well received in like the in California, especially in the Southern California area. They they weren't really, I don't think, making a lot of waves um, too far beyond that. They hadn't really, you know, toured anymore, you know, particularly far at all. Which I'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> more because it, you know, Arthur Lee had this sort of like pathological refusal to to tour for a very long time. Um, but they're still, you know, yeah, it's this weird thing where they're locally very famous, but they're not really known much far beyond Okay. That. Well, I mean, hopefully things change a year later with, I mean, if you're a listener who don't, doesn't know much about love, you might know or recognize at least the album sleeve we're about to talk about, um, if not the opening 30 seconds of, of the first track. Forever Changes in 1967, what recorded in three days, Lee gets in a bunch of session musicians, even at some points uh, playing parts to replace the band members who are still in the band. He's starting to get power struggles with, with Brian McLean, um, but there's an album, and it is their most famous album, right? I mean... Yeah, and the, uh, and the session musician thing is really kind of, it's a, a faint sort of. I mean, so the actual band members did end up playing on the final version of the album but i think i think part of the thing that's going on is that um like drugs are coming more into play as and in particular a couple of the band members were were kind of getting more deeply into heroin and this is not making them the most reliable um rehearsers etc so the producer brought in these session musicians to start to kind of basically say hey if, if you can't cut it then you know we don't need you um, and they sort of, they were kind of scared enough by that and upset enough by that, that they, they did kind of pull their, their stuff together and came back and recorded the album. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, this is the famous album. I mean, that, those, that opening, what, 30 seconds when it sort of the guitar and it sort of kicks in mm-hmm. and you finally get the vocals, even when I didn't think I knew who love was a, a few years ago. And I, I went, Oh no, of course, of course I know this one. I just didn't know who it was. Um, Paul, are the drums better? I, I feel like yes. it's okay. The drums are better on this, yeah, and the, it's much better produced, isn't it? I mean, is this this is um, I can't think who produced the Doors as well. 
Is it Paul? Oh, I can't think of his name now. But they, they've got the they've got the Doors production team on. They said it's much better produced this album. Paul Rothschild and Bruce Botnick were the two people who produced the door all the Doors stuff. It is a bit yeah, Doorsy, isn't it? Yeah, Bruce it's very Doorsy. Yeah. This is one of those albums that sounds of its time. You know, you get albums that are timeless, and then you get albums that you listen to. Like we did, we've record, re-recorded some other podcasts recently, and we go, "Well, this sounds like New York in 1981." Uh, this sounds to me like the west coast or the doors la drugs late 60s uh this this is what this sounds like and it does but not- i think it does have a timeless element as well maybe but because of the amount of artists its influence or of trying to type sound like elements on this record mm. to me there are parts of it that that could have been certainly early 90s indie a lot of bands probably wanted to sound like this i struggled with this because i find it impossible to go back and listen to it without the weight of the people who've been influenced by it, if that makes sense. If you don't yeah, know it first, it's very difficult to just strip all that away, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I find it anyway. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think so. I think that's it. I think baggage is something that's, that is there. And sometimes it is impossible to actually see something with a purely uh, objective, through a purely objective lens. Uh, and to be able to go and listen to it without going, well, yeah, this sounds a little bit like, 92 x or this sounds a little bit like that most of my notes for most of these podcasts are this one sounds like x um this one sounds oh this sounds like the blue tones etc uh, etc et gavin is this your favorite come on yeah absolutely i mean i'd say it's probably my favorite album of all time period it's just for me it's it's almost hard for me to talk about because it it's like i don't want to explore the magic too much you know what i mean and kind of put it under the microscope because i'm afraid it'll lose something don't look behind so if, the we can, if we can just stop now you know that'd be really good but now I just, to me, it's just an album I can listen to at any time. And uh, a friend of mine did a compilation tape for me. It would have been sort of in the late 80s and it had Alone Again or on, on the first track on this C90. And I played it and I was like, that's amazing. And, you know, obviously I'd not heard it then and just kept rewinding that tune and then um, bought the album. And, you know, I've just lived with it ever since really. And it's, yeah, it's like Nick said, it's got, it's got that timeless quality, and although, it, yeah, it does sound late sixties um, California, it's it's not kind of dated in that way. Do you know what I mean? It's still kind of fresh, and um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's amazing for me. It's it's sunny and dark, and it's magical, and it's strange, and tempos change all over the place, but it all nothing jars on it. It's just seamless. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does sound I like a band starting to hit their stride. And it also sounds like a, an album that seemingly must have been huge at the time and broken them to worldwide acclaim. Emily? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> that, that would be nice. But no, it was actually, at least in the United States, it, it did worse than either um, of their previous two albums. So um, it, it wasn't it wasn't the thing that catapulted them to, uh, to stardom, unfortunately. I mean, not for lack of... Um, you know, a lot of, it's by far like the most ambitious thing that they've done so far, right? And the whole thing with, you know, the strings and the um, the horns, all the arrangements were sort of intended from the beginning. They weren't, you know, I've heard some stories that like, oh, they were just, you know, overdubbed at the end or something. It's true that they were recorded afterwards, but they were intended as part of the compositions from the beginning. So I think there's this, to me, the album has this sort of, I don't know, this kind of like holistic quality, like it all kind of, it's a, it's a really good listening in a single set, a setting. Like there are lots of artists where I love like a track or two here or there, but I don't, I don't actually really care about listening to an entire album. Whereas this in, to me is kind of, it's more than the sum of its, its parts in a way, which maybe is, I don't know, maybe that's part of the reason that it wasn't, at least in the US, particularly commercially successful because it, um, I mean, there are individual tracks that are are really great but it's it does really benefit from listening to it all together i think as opposed to just in isolation um who were their peers peers loosely i mean what else was out in 67 were the doors doing things at the time hendrix yet um, woodstock hasn't quite happened right no woodstock hasn't happened yet um i mean monterey pop festival is around this time which they um turned down which is <laughs> one of many great <laughs> career decisions made um, around that time. Um, I think I, I 
I'm afraid that I'm going to make a mistake in terms of the Doors chronology because um, I don't know the exact dates. But you know, they were also on Electra around this time, and I think that um, Arthur Lee may have even like brought them to Electra. Like he went to you know folks at Electra and said like, "Hey, there's this other band that's in LA that's playing, and they're also you should." You, you should listen to them. And love was much bigger at the time. Like there are members of the doors that have said things, to the effect of like, Oh, we just, we just dreamed of being as big as love were because again, it's this, this like thing that I don't know if it can happen these days. And like the current American rock scene where they were locally incredibly famous, even though, it, you know, it was very much a, a localized thing. Okay. Okay. Um, do you think there was anything I mean, obviously, he had a reticence to maybe tour. He made some horrendous decisions as to where to play. Um, do you think there was anything about, well, the, his, his, the fact that he was uh, African-American mm-hmm. uh, at that time? I mean, had that scene sort of embraced diversity, if that's the right thing to say? I mean, I think, I think it's definitely possible that, that I think that's a factor. I mean, I, 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 you know... Um, I think that in terms of, you know, you know, their reticence to, to tour more nationally, um, you, you know, this is in the middle of like the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, you can, you can understand like concern about how that would go over in a lot of like, you know, like the South or even, you know, other parts of the country. Um, I've heard some claims too that like some of the band members may have wondered if Electra was um, maybe not promoting them as fully as they could have because, um, because they were a racially diverse band, uh, I don't. I don't actually know the facts as to whether that's you know a, a credible interpretation. Facts. Or not, we don't need facts. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've often wondered. Yeah, at that time in history, if if it was just a thing that that uh, they just didn't people didn't know how to market them as a band because mm-hmm. there was like these are, there's white bands that we yeah, market yeah. like this and there's black bands that we market yeah, like yeah. this. What exactly. the hell do we do with these guys? Right, you right. know, that might have been an issue. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was. And at that time, it does seem to me, looking back in hindsight, that, that sort of West Coast psychedelia, it was a really white-dominated genre. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, it was also a bunch of middle-class American uh, Californians going, yeah, I, I want to be hippie now. I'm being very dismissive of an entire generation. But <laughs> hey. Um, <laughs> so... If there's ever a, a generation you can be dismissive of, it's the West Coast American hippies of 1967, I think. Perfect. I feel like I've been validated. Well, let, let's stop the episode here then. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so if that is the album that, in, in retrospect, m- most people look back on and, and hold up as, as a pinnacle. Uh, moving on, we're moving on into 1969. I was just, sorry, be, sorry oh. just before you move on, I was going to say there is a bit of a parallel with The Doors because Alone Again All isn't Arthur Lee, is it? It's uh, Brian McLean. Hmm. Right. And he, he sang it and they, then they brought up uh, Arthur Lee's vocals to make it a duet. But it's a bit like uh, Light My Fire is, is hmm. not um, Jim Morrison, is it? Right. Well, I mean, and that's it. There, there was there were clashes, from what I can gather, on the making of this album. Um, uh, both um, him and McLean demanding to have more, basically, control yeah. over the band, which I think sort of comes to a head with the next album because in the next album you've only got Arthur left yeah. uh, from right. the original lineup. Yeah. Um, I, I was counting. I think. I mean, and obviously, Paul, you can look down on this dismissively, but 23 members in Love's career. Um, 23? <laughs> 20, 23 members all in Love's career. And obviously at this time, it was just, it's just Arthur Lee and his granny and some bongos. Um, yeah. But it's still, it's still Love. Now, before we talk about the album, For Sale, um, NME, a few years ago, actually put it up in an article as number one in their 101 albums to hear before you die. This one. That's Not the last choice. one. This one. That is weird. Yeah, number that five, is... wasn't it? Forever changes. Some, yeah, something like that. This was number one, and I, I mean, it's it's all right. That just seems like I, I mean, I, I, I like, I do like the the one we're about to talk about, but that just seems like pure contrarianism <laughs> to me. Which, which a little bit of me admires. I like a music journalist <laughs> to say, say, nope, I'm going to put the, I'm going to yeah, put the sale. You've got to remember one. about that list, Revolver's number 13, isn't it? Of albums right. you're going to, I mean, it's, that's just, that is definitely just willful uh, um, ridiculousness, isn't it? I think, I think, I can't remember which music magazine it was, um, did a, a, a sort of a list of greatest guitarists of all time. And it had Jay Maskis from Dinothor Jr. as number one. 
And I love Jay Maskis from Dinosaur Jr. I mean, I think he, he, I've loved everything he's ever done. But when they interviewed about him, he went, let's be honest, any guitar pole that doesn't have Hendrix as number one isn't really worth it, you know? And it's sort of, there is that contrarian thing of, if I do this, and now it's clickbait, but then obviously it, it sold copies or it sold copies of the enemy, um, which I'm not sure I miss anymore, really. Um, okay, it's, it's, it's bluesy jazz at times. There's still some of the, the Baroque stuff, the garage element sort of gone a bit. The musicians don't seem as good. Is, is that a fair thing to say? Apart from Snoopy, obviously. Oh, he's gone now, isn't he? Oh, well, Snoopy's <laughs> long gone. He's, yeah, Snoopy's yeah. not there well gone. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they don't they don't seem as they don't seem as good, right? I mean, they don't seem to have the range. Uh, whereas in the last album, they could turn it up, they could turn it down, they could go in different directions. These seem a little bit two dimensional. Gavin, you're yeah. sort of nodding. I'm hoping yeah, you agree. No, I agree. I think this one really plods. You know, compared to the last album and, and the first six tracks of Da Capo, when you compare it to this, it's um, it just gets very kind of turgid in places. There's some good tunes on it. I mean, August is great and. You know, we've, we've not really sort of said that the, the opening tracks of, the, of these first four love albums mm-hmm. all have a great start. You know, yeah. track number one is always a belter. Um, but again, a bit like the first album, you know, there's a lot of kind of mid-tempo plodding things. Um, and after everything that happened with Forever Changes, it feels like that was, you know, kind of a magical dancing kite of an album that was going here, there and everywhere. And then suddenly you've just got this kind of this kind of lumpy thing that doesn't really kind of move and float in the same way. Um, and yeah, it just feels like the tightness has gone out of it. And, and a lot of the inspiration seems to have been lost for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're going to cover this probably more in the next episode, but just to touch on this before we, we wrap up this one, um, For Sale was part of like a, a three album recording. Is that right, Emily? Well, it, it ended up it ended up turning into like the, everything they recorded from those sessions got split into into two records basically, but it was it was three LPs worth of material. So like, I mean, like Arthur Lee clearly he had a lot in him, <laughs> you know, like because there were actually a, t- a bunch of songs, additional songs that had been kind of like composed around the time of Forever Changes that that weren't on Forever Changes. So like, I think he had a lot of surplus material. You might argue that it this album would have benefited from a little more tight honing. Cause I, fe- I do agree that like overall, you know, it's not, it's not as focused um, as I think like the previous couple of records with the, with the exception of revelation, obviously. Um, I, I, I do like, I think there are some good standout tracks in here. I think also it's just really, um, it's really difficult to follow an album that has, you know, even if it wasn't super impactful at the time it was released, like an album like Forever Changes that over the intervening decades has, you know, become this kind of cult um, legend, like what could possibly follow that, you know? So I think that sometimes this album gets, um, even though I don't think it's as good as Forever Changes, I, I think it gets like a more negative view because simply because of the contrast with what came before. Okay. Okay. Good. So, what we've we've looked at the first four albums of Love, and it seems that they were starting to hit their stride. They they worked. They finally managed to create what has become a seminal album. Bit of a misstep afterwards, um, and as we just discussed, uh, recorded three albums worth of material, which were split over two albums. We've just looked at one of them, and we're going to look at the next one in our next episode when we will be looking at the latter half of love's career now some bands come back and have a great second half of their careers some bands well just see episode two of our can uh, uh series to to find out how some bands can cannot um we're going to wrap up here and we'll be back in a week um emily thank you very much thank you gavin thank you very much paul thank you very much thank you nick yes Despite Ewan's best efforts to embarrass me, I think I handled meeting Paul Hanley pretty well. He was perfect for the episode, down-to-earth, erudite, and with particularly strong opinions on drum solos. What more could you ask for? 
Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show, and thanks also to Gavin Hogg from the Giddy Carousel of Pop podcast and Emily Baldoni for taking us on this intriguing guided tour. They'll all be back for part two next week when we complete our journey through Love's discography. Thanks to you in any way, and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme tune. Links to his work and other music used for beds are included in the show notes. If you like the show, extend some love to the algorithm makers. Like and subscribe, but most of all, review, review, review. Seriously, it really, really helps. I'm Nick Hildich. If I don't start crying, it's because I have no eyes. Who was the other guy? I got that when I joined a band with Tom Ingley, who used to be in the Spinal Carpets, and we were talking about the fall, and he said, yeah, I saw the fall. They played the Hacienda. They had Carl Burns on drums and some other bloke. So that was me! <laughs> <laughs>